First uh, Samuel 16, as we continue our series there, taking a chapter uh, every Lord's Day. First Samuel 16. This is basically when David uh, begins to take prominence in the story of First Samuel. Children, you know King David. Jesus is the son of David. David is the king who is a man after God's own heart. He's the father of Solomon, the son of Jesse, and the fulfillment of many prophecies. So 1 Samuel 16 says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice. I will show you what to do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably, yes. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and invited them as well to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab, And made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah, or Shema, pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? He said, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is, tending the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, good looking, with bright eyes and good looking, or handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you, to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. 
So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. And one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person. And the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. Amen. And then Matthew chapter 18. Matthew uh, chapter 18, drawing attention uh, in this chapter to sin and forgiveness, greatness in the kingdom. Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life maim or lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you, that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the, go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so it is, not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. First step, if he hears you, you have gained your brother. Second step, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And third step, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. 
Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed ten thousand talents. As he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold that is, with his wife and children, all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii. He laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. But he would not. Instead, he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? His master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Amen. This is the word of the Lord and it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Times of transition are a big deal. We've dealt with a couple of them already in the book of 1 Samuel. Maybe you recall there was a bit of a shift from focus in focus upon Eli to a focus upon Samuel. Remember, Samuel had to be raised up. He was a young man, or he was born at the beginning of 1 Samuel, and he ages and is nearing death in our text this morning. Uh, Then, in terms of prominence, not office like you had from Eli to Samuel, but as far as words written, you begin to see more of Saul than you do Samuel as the book moves along. Children, you've been through times of transition. Some of you went through one this week and are still going through it with the addition of of a new child to your family. Maybe you have moved recently. It's a time of transition, right? There is excitement. There's also some bittersweet. It's a tremendous gift to have uh, great graces like this from God, but it always brings great changes. There's all the adjustments that you have to make when the baby finally arrives, when you get moved into that new house, or when you, you start a new job, or whatever the case may be. And the pains of childbirth are not unlike what was happening within Israel as she awaited the death of Samuel and the end of Saul's reign. You see, to prepare the people for the death of Samuel, the Lord in his kindness was going before them. He went ahead and anointed the new king who would follow Saul. Step back for just a moment. 
Remember the chaos and craziness and punishment, as it were, for the people turning from God to choose an earthly king like Saul. Remember, after the way Saul's appointment went and how his reign has gone, think if they would have had to find another king after Samuel is dead, it would probably be a giant mess. The Lord, in his kindness, enables Samuel as well, not just the people to have the privilege of uh, having an idea who would be king next, but even Samuel was to have a sense of the day that would come after the reign of Saul, to know that his work for the Lord had not been in vain, that his service to the people had not been in vain because they would indeed be granted a king better than Saul. Remember last chapter we read where the Lord had taken the kingdom from Saul and he was going to give it to his neighbor who was better than him. That one is David. Samuel has been faithful, more or less, during his ministry, and you could count this certainly as a blessing from God. It's like a a grandparent or a great-grandparent near their deathbed, and one of their great-grandchildren or grandchildren is born right before they die, and they get to see the next generation, though they doubted that Maybe they would have had that privilege. That's what Samuel is experiencing here. He gets to share, not just in the first earthly king of Israel, but in the greatest one, King David and his anointing. It is as if, though, the Lord is moving Samuel forward. Because you notice how this chapter begins. He's mourning uh, the condition of Saul. He, the Lord doesn't want Samuel to dwell in the past. Remember, God has already said multiple times that things for Saul are over. Why keep on mourning that fall, is what God asks Samuel. Saul is fading out. We're going to replace him with another. Saul has forsaken me. He has turned from my ways and pursued his own. God says to Samuel to go and do this further work that I have for you, and maybe that will help. Maybe you've experienced that in your own life, where God gives you something new to do to draw your attention away from some sadness in the present and past. But what Samuel does is he takes a moment before he's going to obey, and Samuel tries to act like Saul a bit, doesn't he? He offers an excuse not to obey the Lord, but the Lord will not allow it. His excuse is is the fear of Saul. And there's an irony Remember at the beginning of Saul's ministry where uh, a sacrifice or a time of sacrifice has a prominent place where he doesn't wait on Samuel but offers the sacrifice instead. It's a great sin for the king to do that. But here as well, towards the end of Saul's reign, this event of sacrifice is going to have a prominent place. It is, as it were, a strategically timed sacrifice that Samuel was going to lead the people in to secure Samuel's safety. And this is directed from the Lord, because not even Saul would dare interfere with this at this point. And did you notice where the Lord sends Samuel? Did you notice where Samuel's obedience leads him? It leads him to a place called Bethlehem. Have you heard of it, children? Bethlehem, where the son of David was born. Here, King David is going to be anointed as this king over God's people. Of course, it's Bethlehem, right? Bethlehem, meaning house of bread, where God's going to bring forth this eternal bread through his son, the Lord Jesus. This is where Samuel finds the family of Jesse and a particular son named David. 
Maybe you noticed that the elders were trembling at Samuel's coming in verse 4. Why is this? Um, there's, there's no way to be uh, certain. A few answers that have been offered. It's uh, because Bethlehem was, was a remote place, uh, especially from uh, where Samuel resided. So they knew that if Samuel was coming, it's probably not a good thing. Um, Bethlehem as well, as Micah 5.2 says, is a town of no reputation. Part of the reason that Christ was chosen to be born, uh, the reason that it was chosen as the place Christ would be born. Or this also, this fear could be arising because there was an ongoing conflict with Samuel and Saul. And anywhere Samuel and Saul uh, came together, there would be an anticipated drama and ultimately the ire of Saul directed at the people. Or just in general, they could have been convicted by Samuel's presence because Samuel was a prophet and priest of the Lord. That happens all the time in the scriptures. Whatever the reason is, Samuel puts the people at ease and calls on them to prepare for the sacrifice. He prepares the elders and he also prepares the family of Jesse and his sons. Once Samuel uh, offers the sacrifice, he works through the various sons and finally gets to David. Uh, speculation a bit over why there are seven sons that pass through, um, pass through before Samuel, but uh, seven is the number of days in a week, and it's also the number of completion. The Lord did a complete examination of this family as it were, and came to this son who is named David. And once Samuel works through the various sons and finally gets to David, this anointing, it takes place upon him, but it's not to make him king at that moment. Because when you get to chapter 24, 1 Samuel, one of the more familiar chapters in 1 Samuel, you remember David has an opportunity to kill Saul. But he instead just removes a little piece of his cloak. And the line he says there is, he will not lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. This anointing of David here is to mark him out, not as the current king, but as the next king. Only to ascend when the proper time came. David views himself as subject to Saul, at least until chapter 24. But notice what happens at this anointing. It's right in the middle of the text. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon David from that day forward. The Spirit, or as we call it more commonly, the Holy Spirit. Again, don't be those people who deny that the Holy Spirit is at work in the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity is said to come upon David from that day forward. He is anointed in the midst of his brothers. You should be seeing like New Testament imagery jumping in your mind at this point. Like Jesus, when he was baptized. Remember, Jesus was baptized in the midst of his brothers by a prophet of the Lord named John. And that imagery, as we parallel it here, John the Baptist would stand with Samuel and Jesus would stand with David. And there's very similar implications for David's anointing and Jesus' baptism. Both mark the beginning of a ministry, and yet, something that I pointed out to you when we went through Mark, both David and Jesus wait until the right time to assume the authority that was already theirs. 
to assume the authority that the anointing that they had received promised them. You see, Jesus didn't do it immediately either. He had come to do the work of his father, and he had to wait for the overthrow of the corrupt leadership. Same with David. He patiently waits, although doing many holy acts along the way. Now back to this coming of the Spirit upon David. You see that it's immediately contrasted with the Spirit departing from Saul. Right? So the Holy Spirit comes on David, and the Holy Spirit goes off of Saul. It departs from Saul. It's the very next verse. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. But there's more. A distressing spirit from the Lord comes upon Saul and troubles him. Now, think about this for a moment. The text doesn't tell us exactly what this was like, but Saul had to know something. He had to have sensed it, dare we say felt it, or known at some level that the Holy Spirit had left him and had been replaced by a distressing spirit. A side note, in Psalm 51, you remember following David's sin with Bathsheba, one of the lines of Psalm 51 is, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. It seems to me that David has in mind this very event. He knew what the sin of Saul had cost him, the blessing of the Spirit on his kingship, and he knew how grave his own sin was, that it could have brought that same punishment as well. But with this occurring to Saul, the picture is getting clearer, as if it wasn't clear enough thus far in 1 Samuel. Saul is on the downside of the curve of his reign as king. Children, if you would imagine a garden when a flower starts to die. Maybe some flowers have short lives, some of them have long lives, but they all die at some point. Saul's kingdom is not only wilting, it is beginning to touch the ground and be absolutely Hideous. Things are falling apart, and they are about to begin to fall apart even more. Now, let me talk about this distressing spirit for a moment. Because you can get, this is one of the chapters in 1 Samuel that, that can get a little bit uncomfortable because of our modern uh, frame of mind looking at certain things, and we'll come to that more in the application at the end. But this distressing spirit, this is not a bad mood that the Lord just chooses to describe as a spirit sent from heaven. Notice it is from the Lord, this distressing spirit. Note, the Holy Spirit is not the only spirit that the Lord sends. Now be careful. That doesn't mean this spirit of distress is some equal but evil spirit to the Holy Spirit, yin versus yang or something like that. That's not the way it's being used here. There's another text in the New Testament that has a similar idea, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 11 to 12, where it speaks of God sending a strong delusion upon people who have believed a lie and have rejected the truth and chosen unrighteousness. It literally says that. For this reason, God will send them a strong delusion. 2 Thessalonians 2, 11. Sent from God, what we might call a spirit of delusion. That's a, a big word for confusion or further believing of lies. Much like our text in 1 Samuel 16, 
where God sends a distressing spirit. We could say so much for God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, O King Saul. You got to have room for God doing things like this in your theology. You must. So many of us will counsel wicked and righteous people alike that God is working for their good and doesn't expect anything of them, but that they should just try really hard, believe in God, and maybe come to church when you have time. It's so disconnected from Scripture and so disconnected from common sense. You don't see the Lord in Scripture treating the wicked and the righteous in the same way. We have before us this morning a text where the Lord does something that, quite frankly, is very uncomfortable. He sends a distressing spirit to trouble the king, not the king of Persia, the king of his own people. He sends a distressing spirit upon. He does not play by our rules. Now, what happens in the last bit of this chapter is, in my opinion, one of the more peculiar sections in Scripture. And I don't think it's meant to be peculiar, but we need to call it peculiar because we don't quite know what to do with it. We're presented with the reality that David, playing the harp for Saul, would put the distressing spirit away from him. Why is this peculiar? Because we live in a time where the power of music is denied. We live in a time where the power of music is denied. Let me give you some examples. It doesn't matter what the music that I enjoy sounds like. I just listen to the words as if there is no power in music. Two, another example. Oh, honey. This is one your mom might say. The type of music you use in church doesn't matter. Just sing to God wherever and however you can get something out of it. As if there is no power in music. I bet some of you are already beginning to object, maybe get a little frustrated in my explanations right now. Pastor, it's the words that count. Words do count, absolutely. But music does as well because music has power. You see that it is taken for granted in the text that the the proper playing of the harp has the power to put Saul in a state of peace. The last text, the last verse in the chapter says so. You see a thread that's that's also in the background of our text is how the Lord, the Spirit, through the scriptures is showing the giftedness of David. First, he's a shepherd. Second, he is known in his heart and approved by the Lord. Third, he is a skilled musician, and several other things are listed as well. You see, this musical skill was such that he could tame the distressing spirit upon Saul. The Lord had given Saul the spirit, but then he took it away. The Lord gave the distressing spirit to Saul, and yet graciously provided David the strength through harp playing, to drive that spirit away. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm going to do a longer section of application than I, I normally do here. But I have, uh, what is it, five things, uh, 
four things that will probably sound like a lot more than four that I want to draw your attention to as we close this, this sermon. First, the idea of joining in sacrifice, or what we might call joining in worship. What Samuel calls the people to do, remember he says, uh, sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He does that with the elders, and then he does it with Jesse and his family. When Samuel called on them to consecrate themselves, this is an Old Testament way of saying, prepare yourselves for worship. Friends, we are called to do the same thing. We are called to consecrate ourselves to join one even greater than Samuel in sacrifice, or a synonym of sacrifice is worship. But the one who we join is the Lord Jesus. Just as Paul compares in Hebrews how, yes, they uh, had a sufficient message of salvation in the Old Testament, but in the New, we have an even more sufficient and we better listen even harder. Right? If they were to prepare themselves, how much more should we prepare ourselves is the implication I want to draw to. In Hebrews 2, uh, Psalm 22 is quoted and, and it says this, This is Jesus speaking. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the church will I, Jesus, sing praise to you, O Father. Again, that's Jesus talking. I will declare your name. No big deal, right? That doesn't make us shudder at all. But then it says in the midst of the church... Will I sing? Jesus sings? He joins the church? This is no Samuel. This is Jesus leading us to this worship. Jesus is talking. He calls us brethren. And he, in the midst of the church, sings praise, or to use Old Testament language or Romans 12 language, offers a sacrifice of praise to the Father. Friends, I ask you, how much would it transform the way you prepare for worship And participate in worship if you believe that you were joining Jesus in praise to God. How much? Because he leads you in worship. He joins you in worship. The call to worship, the the consecration, the preparation that we're supposed to do leading up to worship. It's not a call from me. It's a call from him. Second thing. The Lord looks on the heart, right? Another one of those horrifically mangled verses in modernity. This does not mean that sincerity is all that matters. It does not mean that you can do whatever you want so long as your heart is right. You hear people kind of believe in this when they talk about maybe their grandson who is really, really bad, and then they'll say, He's got a good heart, though. (laughs) As if that were possible. Out of the mouth comes that which is in the heart, right? And all the actions, therefore. What is it? What it does mean, though, is that the Lord is not impressed with men and how they appear, but in how they are. Not impressed with what we look like, but in what we are. Now, this doesn't mean the exterior doesn't matter. The Lord cares about that too. He has laws regulating those things, and nature does as well. But the exterior cannot wipe away filth on the interior. 
The Lord looks on the heart. He knows the heart is the implication. And that's where judgment begins. Third thing. The anointing of the Spirit received for ministry. You see, David received the Spirit for his kingship. And the Lord Jesus did as well. You remember at his baptism, the Spirit descended upon him. When the Lord establishes men for his work, he gives his spirit in excess to them. We see this in Acts 6, when those who were appointed as deacons were noted as being filled with the spirit. That is in distinction from those who already had been baptized with the spirit. They had an excess, an abundance of the spirit for the service that God had given them. So too David is given here. Saul was given it, but he refused it. Now, not only is the Spirit given in excess to those who serve in special offices, but just like we see in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit is given to all Christians. Think of a verse like we heard in Matthew 18, where the Lord promises to punish those who don't forgive their brother when they sin against them. The only way to hear a verse like that and not shake your fist at God is to have his Holy Spirit. Only the Spirit of the Lord Jesus can make you be like him, who is the one who said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And lastly, the power of music. The power of music. Now, your own experience proves this. You choose music to affect or based upon your mood. Don't you? Certain music does certain things to your mood. And in this, you see that it isn't so subjective. You didn't write a book and submit it to the music gods when you were born saying, this is going to change me this way. It just happens, right? All of us tend to have similar reactions, for the most part, to certain types of Music. Don't deny that music has power. Another thing. Music reveals culture. Music shapes culture. Why do you think there is so much evil in music? It's not because music is bad. It's because music is powerful. The enemy knows this. But so many Christians just wag their fingers saying, the only thing that matters are the words. And what's also revealed in this, a bit uncomfortable, but it kind of bubbles up to the top. When you start talking about music revealing culture and shaping culture, you begin to see things like the inequality of cultures and by implication the inequality of music. What does a culture's music produce? It's a question that our eyes can observe. What does a culture's music contain? The lyrics. See, there's a reason that you don't like that culture's music and they don't like yours. That's actually okay. That's not what so many would call today racism. There's a reason it's weird when someone from one culture or people tries to perform that of another, it feels fraudulent. 
Because it is. Music reveals culture, it builds culture, and it can be used to tear it down because music is powerful. There is such a thing as church music, and it can only be played by certain types of instruments. Again, you don't need a list from Scripture to determine that list. You just know. You sense it. The reason so many Christians don't like church music played on proper music or proper instruments or sung a cappella is, quite frankly, they've never been trained by anyone to understand what music is and does other than the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's just the case. I jokingly said to Sam this week, people don't like classical music because they're full of demons. Classical music is beautiful, and it makes demons uncomfortable. It just does. A question maybe of something uh, based on this, how do I know what church music is versus Christian music? Because there is Christian music, and there is church music. Not all Christian songs are bad, but not all Christian songs are appropriate to sing in the church. They're not all conducive to congregational singing. Here's a simple question, maybe. I've heard this used by many uh, pastors, whether it's just Christian music or church music. Can you sing it at someone's bedside who is dying? Can you sing it at someone's bedside who is dying? Or can you sing it at a graveside of a funeral? That'll begin to get you somewhere. You see, the Lord is worthy of the best and most beautiful music his people can offer him. And quite frankly, if we have an issue with that, it's not the music that's the problem. It's our heart. And that's the place that the Lord looks. As we consider 1 Samuel 16, we can get into the weeds about kingship and the spirit and all those things. But but sometimes it's appropriate to draw these practical lessons like this, to think about things that God would have us to think about. Yes, I want you to think about the transition from Samuel and Saul to King David. That's important. But know that the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. And that music is powerful. Amen. Let's pray.